Um, Tiffany actually fell. Um, after some conversations between her and I, she actually did what's called a pivot. Uh, and they really didn't articulate her her product, and I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, the, the product is called Pimp Win, but it basically allows uh, black hairstylists to take appointments for, from their customers online. So, uh, you know, any woman in here who, who has some opportunity to come up on Saturday night and trying to get their hair done on Saturday afternoon can realize how big that opportunity is. Um, she actually made the shift and turned it into a mobile application, and that is also live in the Apple um, App Store. Uh, and the rest of the guys are still continuing to push with their startups and make acceleration. I think the key thing to understand is, you know, most of these, for a new program in general, regardless of race, um, to have over 50% of the companies involved receive funding is a significant achievement. Um, and it really just speaks to the possibility and opportunity that's available to us that when we learn the process, uh, we can be successful. And I think we've, we've proven that in various other industries, and now we can prove that through technology. You mentioned in the film that less than 1% of startups are founded by African-Americans. Michael Aronson from TechCon said that being an African-American is an advantage, really. Well, I think we all believe it, right? To advantage to us because I think we 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 pass through unsurmountable odds on a daily basis. It's a challenge in the valley. There was another thing that was mentioned in the documentary called pattern match, and basically what investors in the valley say is, look, um, I'm playing the odds. If I look past my last five ten years of investment, the guys that have returned investment for me, 10x is what venture capitalists look for, are white males who have engineering degrees from various um, colleges across the country. The challenge with that is. Um, if we don't have successes, then we can't see that pattern. They're actually hiding behind the data. I'm not saying that they're they're racist and they're biased, but they have data to fall back on. And what we have to look at that is we have to change that data. Um, you know, you won't be able to stay on that data if 20 of us or 10% of us start to create successful startups. So we have to take the onus on that because, as you see from the documentary, if we wait for that pattern to change, it will never change. Uh, Michael. I'm going to direct the issue of race to you as an attorney, so you are familiar with African Americans. Um, oh, I will raise my voice. Um, I'm going to address the next question to Michael, and that is uh, with the issue of race. I'm sure as an attorney you've uh, experienced a lot of cases where African Americans have been discriminated against. Uh, what would you advise uh, in general when it comes to race discrimination, and in particular when you're talking about uh, the one individual who was stopped by walking home in the middle of the street. Well, first of all, race always, always matters. No doubt about that. A um, couple things I want to say. At first, I thought in watching the beginning of the documentary, I thought it was going to be an alarmist type of documentary. In other words, saying that there are no black folks who are involved in this. But it reminds me of saying there's no black folks in Mensa or in the... Uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. I mean, my point is anytime it's an elitist type of thing, there's not going to be a lot of anybody. That's the first thing. So because it's so difficult to get into the business, it's not as if a lot of black folks are blocked out. A lot of folks, period, are blocked out. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing in regard to the issue of race, it's really interesting because when I hear people, I think it was Arrington from TechCrunch, when I hear white folks make those kind of statements, it reminds me of what I ask people as an attorney. People often say that there's no racism in 2012 in the criminal justice system. 
and no racism in the civil law system. And I always say to them, let's say hypothetically you have to go to court tomorrow as a defendant in a murder case, in a robbery case, in a rape case, and you have the ability to go as a white male defendant or a black male defendant. Which would you choose? And everybody would choose the white male defendant for obvious reasons. Nobody here is blacker than me, but I'd be the white guy in a heartbeat as a defendant. And it doesn't just stop there. If I'm applying for a bank loan and I have the same credit score, the same income, the same education, and I can walk in the bank as the white guy or the black guy, same thing, renting an apartment, applying to a school. So race always matters. Um, but simply not having is no excuse for not getting. The thing I really liked about each of those black folks who were involved in documentaries is that they were aggressive. They were go-getters. But we shouldn't have to be that. You shouldn't have to be an exceptional black person in order to get anything. But that's the reality. So we can whine and bitch and moan about it, but that's the reality. The bottom line is that if you want to win the game, you got to play the game. And if you're going to play the game, you got to play it aggressively. And that's what we have to do. Um, but one final thing I'll say before I wrap this up. In terms of the young man who was stopped, I I'm just not surprised about that, stopped by the police on the street, because that happens all the time. And for the police to say that we stopped him because he was an unfamiliar person in the neighborhood, what about the unfamiliar white guys in the neighborhood? Are they stopped? Of course they're not. So race always matters, but that's no excuse for packing it in and saying, therefore, I'm not going to play the game. Black folks overcame slavery, Jim Crow, sharecropping, debtors' prison, all those kind of things. So if we were able to overcome in terms of that, we can overcome in terms of this as well. So, so, so I, I think you made some really good points, but there's a couple points i got to continue with when, specifically when it comes to technology, right? Because... It's very important for me that we don't walk out of here with the same perceptions that we walked in with, right? And one of those perceptions are that we believe that technology should be created for us, but we shouldn't create it, right? We believe that we can buy an iPhone, but nobody ever thinks about what does it take to build an app on an iPhone, right? We use Facebook and Twitter like it's going out of style, but no one ever thinks about well, what does it really take to do that, right? So when you, when you make a statement like that it's elitist, I'm here to tell you that technology is not an elitist platform anymore. The reason is that the barriers to technology are lower today than they've ever been. Right? You can walk into a library today, and all the information you need to start an Internet company is there right now. And that's whether it's the Philly Library or the library in Stanford. In Stanford. The, the, the thing we need to realize is that we, we latch on to those things as reasons to not excel, and it's not, right? You know, yes, there's some people here who are in Ivy League, you know, colleges, but I've met guys who started making out of who didn't finish high school, right? There's in suburban areas right now who just for fun have built iPhone apps that make 60 grand a year from their iPhone app, and they're happy about it because it was just interesting to do. We have to change that perception. You know, it, it is the case in a lot of other areas, right? You know, subjective industries like marketing and things of that nature, you can have a great idea and someone can say it stinks because you're black. Right? Technology really allows you, and I'm telling you from personal experience, I've had bosses tell me, I don't care what color you are because you make more money than me than anyone else in, in my company. Right? It allows you to leapfrog those things and create a platform. And the opportunities for us in terms of economic parity are through technology. So, and, and that's, you know, that I, I just want to say that because the digital divide, when we talk about that a little bit later, 
you know, it really is about it's a racial thing. It's not it's not it's not a class thing. It's not only for the elitist people. It's for everyone to recognize the opportunity. And and I certainly would defer to you. I mean, this is your area of expertise. But when I say elitist, I don't know any other profession where eighty percent of the startups fail. So it seems to me that in terms of people trying to become doctors or lawyers or accountants and going into those businesses, it's certainly not an 80% failure rate. But in this particular industry, it seems to be that. Well, not seems to be. It is, in fact, that. So when I say elitist, I mean only a small few seem to make it, black or white. Yeah, but, but uh, again, I, so, so I get you. I, I think the one thing, launching a, a startup is hard, right? Launching a business is hard, whether you decide to sell mixtape CDs out of your trunk, whether you decide to open a pie company, it's hard, right? The, but the, that doesn't mean the opportunities aren't there. What, what the, the statement was was that 80% of first-time entrepreneur, entrepreneurs who seek funding fail. What it doesn't say is that there are a lot of entrepreneurs who never need to seek funding because they create businesses that generate income, right? Twitter and Facebook are the, are the, the end game, right? They're the billion-dollar companies. But there's a lot of companies around that make $2 million a year, $10 million a year, employ 10 people. Each person in that company is making a six-figure salary. They're catering their lunch. they got an Xbox in the corner. Like, these are the environments that are real. And, and what I'm trying to do is, is you know, and, I, you know, we, we're among families, so I can have this conversation. We've got to demystify stuff, right? We, we put things up here and think it's okay not to go there. Right, and the reality is, is that it's more. It's, the opportunities are better for us today. I meet kids on a regular basis, and I'll start off by saying, "Hey, there was a guy who was at a college eating free meal plan using computers that the, the school owned, and within five years he was working with Puffy Jay Z and Russell Simmons together. And 80% of the time, they don't know who I'm talking about. But I say, how many of you guys have a Facebook account? They all raise their hand. Right, so that's the disconnect. Right, and once we bridge that disconnect. You're, you want your kids running to you saying, hey, look what I built, not, hey, look what I watched, right? I mean, those, that's, the, that's the big different thing. So, and, and so um, you know, and I apologize for this being So, and, and the reason I'm passionate about how that because I just think it's that important, right? It, 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 that fundamental shift in our thinking will literally change our race. It, it just will. It will take us from being, you know, out of parity and have the higher levels of unemployment to being enablers and creators of businesses, of opportunities, of careers for people who otherwise wouldn't have. Professor uh, Humphrey, uh, putting on your hat as a journalist, what did you take away from this conference? Um, well, actually, uh, you did, uh, Gordon Johnson didn't get a chance to fully introduce me. My background is actually in engineering. I have two degrees in engineering and uh, work as a tech expert and a journalist as well. And my takeaway was I didn't agree with Mr. Arrington about I just don't know any black tech people because everybody I know is in tech and is black. So, uh, But I do agree that the pipeline is, is not big enough, you know, especially for women of color in science and technology. There are fewer than 2% of African-American females in science and engineering in this country. So that is really important for us to especially, you know, uh, Navarro's passionate about technology. I'm, I'm passionate about women in technology because we really need to – encourage our daughters, encourage our sisters, encourage our young ladies to understand that, you know, math doesn't have to be hard or you don't have to uh, focus more on your appearance than on your brain. I think you can be smart and cool. 
I mean, I think that's the overarching message. So we do need to make a better effort, I think, overall to encourage our young people, but our, our young ladies especially, to pursue careers in science and technology and, and kind of exactly demystify it. And, you know, I think you, you send that message to young women very early on that that is hard. Don't worry about it. You don't have to think about that too hard. Don't worry your pretty little head about that. And we have to get out of that mentality. It will be, you know, it's something that's universal. It's something that's accessible to every single person on the world. It's something that translates across language, across race, across gender, because it is uh, that infinite. It's mad, you know. So I think that's the, the takeaway I got from this, is that we really need to be encouraging our young people to pursue those same careers, because we can all do it. How did you get involved in engineering? Um, I was always good in math and science, and uh, I, I actually wanted to be one of these people back in the day. My my initial uh, career goals were to design video games and do special effects for movies, and you know, just on computers all day long as a teen in high school and things like that, and and uh, got a scholarship to uh, pursue it. So um, that was it. Um, it was said in something that black people don't help each other. Mm. Anyone can answer why that is. I think um, because I I haven't seen that in in my technology career. I, I was an engineer for some time, and, and getting through school, it was we were all whole dancing and we shall overcome studying for calculus tests. So I didn't see it there, but I definitely see it now that I'm in the entertainment and television industry, I think, you know, we have this misperception that there are only a certain amount of slots available, and you're not getting mine, you know, and if I help you, that means that that's an opportunity, there's an opportunity that I just gave away if I help you get it, and, and that's just not the case, really just not true. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's in terms in a lot of places the crabs in the barrel mentality, right, and and, and Stephanie's exactly right. You know, we have this fake mentality that um, there's only enough opportunity for one of us, right? So if I blow you up, that means that I'm not going to blow up. Uh, and, and the reality is, is that there's an opportunity enough for every of us. And, and you know, it, it's interesting. I've, I've done these screenings probably in probably 20 years ago now. And when they show the Vivek Wadra piece, people latch onto the fact that he talked about putting a white guy in front instead of latching onto the fact that, they, we don't help each other, and the Indian people do when they come here. You know, the, the, the Dunkin' Donuts stores are an exact example of that. Five of them buy one, they raise enough money, they send it at home, they bring their cousin there, and then after they make enough money, they buy five houses on the street, and they hop back and forth across the houses, and they buy another Dunkin' Donuts to bring another family here, right? Now, y'all know Jamal had a Dunkin' Donuts. As soon as he started making money, y'all went to see him. He's going to you know, that's, I mean, that's our mindset. Like, we got to change that because there is enough for everybody, you know. And I think, you know, in the technology field, it's even more prevalent, right? The one thing I can tell you from my experience in Silicon Valley is that once you break that layer, I mean, my God, they're, they're the most open, you know, fact-sharing. I've sat down with guys, and they'll help you. They're in a competing business, and they'll help you talk about how you should improve your business to get up to par because they realize, you getting bigger just makes the pie bigger for everybody, yeah. right? When you look at you look in Fortune and you see uh, Steve Jobs and Eric Smith and um, Bill Gates sitting around having tea, they're fierce competitors, but they all know that there's enough peace in that business for all of them, and they're growing the business. We got to get to the point where we look at growing. Business. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
If I can just jump in briefly, I certainly agree with what I've heard, and I defer to to the folks who, who live this life. But I must say that when we compare the plight of African Americans to other ethnic groups, we kind of miss the point because they didn't have the trouble that we have. They have a cultural bond, a religious bond, a language bond, a bond that was taken away from us. I mean, we got black folks who are Muslim, who are Christian, who are conservative, who are Republican, who are left-wing, who are right-wing. So we had this split, this divide, where everybody ganged up on us. So if we have this inability to work together, that wasn't something that is innate in us. That happened. We were stripped from everything when we got here. So we look at our plight and we say, well, we don't bond as closely as other people. Well, the other people haven't gone through the hell that we've gone through. So it's certainly true that there seems to be more of a crab in a barrel mentality, but I don't think we can stop it. We have to ask why that is and to understand why that is. The Indians and the other ethnic groups that come in, they have a bond that we don't have. And because we don't have that bond, there is going to be the problem. But I can see that we can't just whine about that. In fact, because of that, that's why there's a need to fight that much harder. But I think we have to appreciate why it is the way it is. I don't want to be a team. <laughs> I know. But I, I think, so, so, so yes, we have had struggles. We've had significant struggles, right? But I think that's a part of our DNA. And, and the, the same part of that DNA that allowed us to successfully move those struggles makes us better candidates to be entrepreneurs. I used to know a guy in Trenton who could take a metal piece of metal and scratch it on the ground a certain way and make three phone calls. I knew another guy who couldn't, you know, dropped out of school but could open a cable box and change some wires and we was watching HBO, right? So we always have a nature of moving outside the box to solve problems. The problem is, is that from a social standpoint, it's misdirected. Right? We don't see the opportunities. I said if I could take kids, a bunch of kids from Philly and take them off to Facebook for a day and let them walk to the headquarters to see guys riding on skateboards, see, you know, catered lunches, see guys, you know, wearing whatever they want, bringing their dogs to work and they need things in nature and they say to me, What do I have to do to get a job like this? I'm like, You gotta learn how to code and we stop that by a library, it'd be end. Because the challenge is that there's no end game. We don't because there's not enough of us. That seems like a unicorn. We need to roll up through the um, through the place here like we're watching, you know, a fantasy film because kids don't see that. You know, I know I'm an anomaly. I know that, you know, most of us in the tech field are anomalies. Those are the images we have to see. We have a perception problem that children believe that it is easier to become LeBron James or 50 Cent than it is to become in these careers, right? And, and, we know that, but we don't do much to change it. And, you know, from a statistical standpoint, it is actually significantly harder to get in the NBA than it is to start a company. I'm going to tell you because I tried and I got knee surgeries to prove it, right? <laughs> so we have to change that messaging. I'm not saying it's not hard. But anything worth having is never easy. And, and, and once we do that and incrementally change the paradigm, the reason why I'm so passionate about this documentary is my hope is is that someone sat down and watched this and said, you know what, I never thought about that. What does that take? And you know what they don't realize is that they are going to Google search away from opportunity. Right. Right.
Uh, one of the things that struck me in the film was when the gentleman was talking about how the election of President Obama uh, did not do anything for him. And it seems as though since President Obama's election, a lot of blacks in particular were saying, you know, Obama hasn't helped me, you know, clean my laundry. He hasn't helped put food on my table. It seems as though it was President Obama's responsibility as soon as he got elected to do everything for African Americans. So I pose the question in terms of accountability. Government accountability versus individual accountability. Is the government responsible or should they be responsible for helping someone's entrepreneurial? I'll just jump in and say no, the government is not responsible and the government should not be responsible. Pretty much the government, from my standpoint, is simply there to stay out of the way. And if the government can stay out of the way effectively, then it seems to me that that's the most effective thing. A lot of black folks thought that with the election of Barack Obama that he was going to be the black president. And that's why many black folks, I think, to this day are a bit disappointed that he won't take a stand on affirmative action or reparations or issues like that. He hasn't, and he shouldn't, because that's not his job. He's the president of the United States. So I saw and heard the comment that you just referred to, and I take the position that the government doesn't have an obligation. It seems to me as long as the government does not set up roadblocks to get in my way, then that's sufficient. Just stay out of the way. Nobody's going to agree eventually if we got here. Just a minute. I, I, I see you coming around. Thank you very much. And I, and I agree with that as well, but but I think the um, that Wayne, uh, Wayne Sutton in the, in the video did uh, the president a disservice by saying he hasn't done anything for me. He's done everything for us. Because just like Navarro said, you got to see it before you know you can do it. And there were, you know, millions of little black babies that, you know, the day before Election Day in 2008 never thought they could be president. Now they do, but they have that belief. So I think just by default, he did wonders for our community. But you have to take that message and you have to internalize that message and understand that it is possible and, you know, and all things are capable through God himself. You know what I mean? So he did what nobody else before him had ever been able to do, you know, because I don't know that I even envisioned a black president in my lifetime, to be perfectly honest. You know what I mean? I figured, well, we'd probably get somebody that could run, but he probably wouldn't win, you know. So, you know, just for, in my own life and perspective, he accomplished something that nobody else had ever been able to accomplish. So I think, you know, it is, it is a misstatement and, and, a, and a really uh, uh, shame that, that Wayne would think that the president hasn't done anything because he's done wonders for this country just because he's there. I was going to open it up to the audience. I'm sure you guys well, have well, okay. Before we do that, before we do that, because I'm all about clarity. So, um, so, so I do agree that, that you know, um, how we criticize the, um, how we criticize President Obama, example of President Browse to the answer and all the way up to the top, right? Expected to hook up. But what I don't agree with is is kind of touting, you know, the the the, the lack of need of the lack of need of affirmative, you know, for affirmative action. I don't believe in affirmative action, and I don't believe that we should expect the government to create pathways that we can create for ourselves, right? Um, because in, with affirmative action. People use that as a racist fight against us to say that we don't deserve the opportunities that we we have, right? Uh, you know, I, I have people in my own family who are from very racist areas of the country and grew up in times when, you know, the struggles I'm talking about are insignificant. 
But the reality is they were able to still be successful, and no one said, okay, come on because you're black, right? Mm -hmm. So I think as much as it, you know, people think it created a pathway, we kind of rely on things a little bit too much. We just got to get out of that, that, you know, in the the documentary, that dinner was a 45-minute conversation. We told them, stop depending on other people and execute yourself. Because the reality is, is, you know, we get into a spectrum of a a piece of advancement, but we get complacent. Right, like those guys, they were like, "Man, I'm about to be on CNN. I'm up here in Silicon Valley. Everybody wants to see me." And what I told them is that the reality was, is that if you don't take those little nuggets and become successful and execute, that five minutes of fame really becomes three minutes. Because right now, the only people looking at this documentary right now are us. The documentary is aired three times. It's off. It's gone. And if they don't build successful companies, it's it's a wrap for them. Right, and and, and you know. We need, to, we need to think about that and take those windows of opportunity and make them real for ourselves and not expect anybody to start those. Well, let me just say this. We moved close five minutes ago, and now we're going back apart. Um, I, I have to strongly, strongly disagree with the position of affirmative action based on myself alone. I grew up in North Philly to a single mother and then went on to a black college, Cheney University. Did pretty well there. Got a, an affirmative action scholarship to Ohio State University School of Law. Once I got there and they paid my way completely because I was an affirmative action student, once I graduated, I came back into Philadelphia. And those who are familiar with Philadelphia, for example, you know about this attorney by the name of Dick Sprague. Yeah. Dick Sprague is probably one of the greatest attorneys in the world. I beat Dick, Dick Sprague. The only way I was able to beat Dick Sprague in a courtroom, head-to-head, in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, is because somebody said, yeah, I know this black kid from Cheney. His GPA probably doesn't mean as much as a GPA from Temple or from Harvard or Princeton, but he was involved in student government, involved in some um, fraternities, so he did okay. So we're going to make sure that when we used to slam the door to students like him, we're going to leave it open a little bit. And now Michael Cord comes in, he does well academically, he passes the bar exam, he's able to change the law in a number of ways in Philadelphia without going into a whole lot of detail. I was able to file and win the first private criminal complaint charging a white cop with the murder of a black defendant we know in Pennsylvania history and maybe even American history. No black, no white cop in Pennsylvania, maybe the United States, has ever been charged with the murder of a black victim. Manslaughter, yeah, aggravated assault, yeah, but never murder. By me being able to get into that law school only because of affirmative action, now I'm in a position to deal with this white guy, the god of lawyers, Dick Sprague, and compete. Had it not been for affirmative action, I would have never gotten that opportunity. One final thing I'll say about that, which is critically important, Affirmative action is just that, an affirmative, positive step. When you look at what white people had, there was nothing but set-asides and quotas for all white people. Now something has to change to say that, okay, we're not going to make it 100% white males. We're going to allow white females. We're going to allow black males. We're going to allow other people. So for me, affirmative action doesn't give me a handout. It doesn't even give me a hand up, it just levels the playing field. Without affirmative action, nothing changes. That's right. That's right. You 
I'm kind of right in the middle of both those opinions, actually. I mean, I do believe that, you know, ultimately we got to stand on our own, too. I mean, that's, that's just the bottom line. And uh, but but there are instances where but there are instances where you're not even going to be allowed to stand on your own to in the same space as someone else just by virtue of the color of your skin. So in that instance, something needs to be done about that. Something needs to be mandated or legislated to prevent that from happening, to prevent that inequity from happening. Because if, if if I'm standing on my own too and you're standing on yours, there's no reason that. I shouldn't have the same kind of access and opportunity as somebody else. So in that instance, things do need to be equalized. But but at the end of the day, you know, you you only have yourself. And let me just say this before you add this quickly. When I was in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court litigating against Dick Sprague, I was not an affirmative action lawyer. I was just a lawyer arguing my case. But the only way I was able to get into the Supreme Court and fight against Dick Sprague and win is because of affirmative action. It simply let me in. It's like it opened up the boxing ring to me. It didn't say to the referee, hey, you've got to let Mike Cord win this. It simply said, referee, let Michael Cord into the ring. For me, that's all affirmative action is. Let me fight the fight. So, just to be clear, right? <laughs> um, I want to clarify because I actually missed quote. When I'm talking, when I said I don't believe in affirmative action, I meant I don't believe in it for the technology, right, for what state we're in today. I firmly understand those opportunities that were there, and I firmly understand that we wouldn't have gotten to a lot of those places if affirmative action didn't exist. My point is that in this tech world, affirmative action would not help us because the whole, the whole mentality of this industry, specifically in Silicon Valley, is about execution and innovation. And without putting, and if we put people there without that process training, just for the sake of putting them there, they'd actually be at a disadvantage. Yeah. So yeah. my point is, I agree, right? We, we have to have the opportunity to get in places that otherwise we would not have gotten to there, right? The other thing we have to recognize is, what if we've done with that opportunity to do the things we need to do? We need to push ourselves to do further. We owe it. We owe it to people like my, my colleague here who was able to go and win cases because of affirmative action. We owe it to my, to my father-in-law. We owe it to the people who carved those paths to take advantage, because we can all recognize that we are not taking advantage of it right now. Right? We're not maximizing those opportunities. So let me say one thing that we can agree. Agree. We actually agree on something. That's one thing that we agree on. What he just said and what I'm saying is exactly the same thing. That he spoke to were trying to get into this program. It was just what I pointed out where I don't want the referee in the ring to help me out. I want to fight the opponent, but I just want to be able to get into the ring. So if there's a training school that teaches boxers how to box, I want to get into that cha- training program. And now once I get ring, they get to where they got in the documentary, they should not get a in order to get to Harvard's and the Yale's and the Princeton's and the MIT's, in order to get to that point, that's where the affirmative action comes in. We're so close. We're so close. Right? <laughs> the, the, the challenge is with the technology industry is that Harvard and Yale are not the places you're going to get right. those skills. That's right. That's right. So, the, 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 the world of technology innovation moves at such a speed, that that's right. not, and that's not what mainstream is getting them. They're getting them by opening up a laptop and teaching themselves. They're getting them by going up. Here's another example. Right. Great example. We'll go to Q&A. I, 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 so, 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 
in my blog, I wrote, I said, you know what, I'm going to write and see what it takes to build an iPhone app, right? So I went and did a Google search. I found that in our iTunes, there's a class that is taught at Stanford that you can download free and watch. It's an professor, right? I went to the library. I found these 10 books on iPhone development. I did a Google search. I want to learn how to build iPhone apps. There were tutorials, there were sites to go to, any way you want to learn, et cetera. Then I said, let me go to the Apple developer site and see what does it cost for me to put my app into the app store. It's $99. So you rationalize that against, you know, starting a bakery, starting a laundromat, starting in those industries. The barriers are low. And what I don't want, to, want us to do is walk out of here and think that there's some insurmountable mountain in which that's created. If we, had to, if we all had to fill this room, this table to start a company tonight, this table to start a company tonight. And I'm telling you, it happens. There's these things called hackathons, where these guys, engineers, our people with ideas, go into a room on a Friday. They give you pizza, Red Bull, water, etc. They come out Monday with a prototype for an idea, right? There was a company um, called GroupMe that did it at one of the TechCrunch hackathons. A year and a half later, they were brought by Skype for $300 million. So, so what I, what I, we just can't walk away with thinking that the only way that we can achieve this success is that we, we, we go to Harvard or we go to Princeton, these training programs. And the other point where I think we agree, because I'm going to bring it back, we don't agree before we leave, is that <laughs> there needs to be a training in the process, because what I see more often than not is that, you know, there are people who try entrepreneur endeavors, but they don't take the time to learn the process to do this correctly. And who's going to teach them? No one. We have to teach ourselves. So we have to recognize that the opportunity is there. We have to create training programs in our own communities and say, hey, we're going to enable you with the skills to go out and compete with any of those guys, and we won't need to give me a further action because my product's going to be better than yours anyway. Right. I just want to well, add one more thing. There we go. There we go. I, I just want to add one more thing. I feel like we should have done Stephanie in the middle. I know. <laughs> Referee, I should have worn my black and white stripes. Um, no, I, I I do agree, and I think the the, the issue that the two gentlemen were getting caught up with is, is it is a little bit different in technology. I mean, you know, people in technology value intellect over anything. They don't they don't care what you look like. They they care less. So, uh, and it is. It's like it's just all about you and what you can bring to the table and what you can offer. And and for anybody in here that has children, Navarro mentioned a couple of different things that you could do to uh, learn how to code. Right now, uh, codeacademy.org. Org is is doing one free year. It's called Code Year, and they are teaching you how to code in a year. So every single day, you'll get an email with an assignment and with some coding and some language that you can learn. So it's a way for anybody. Like you said, you don't have to sit in a classroom at MIT. You don't have to sit in a classroom at Harvard. You sit in front of your computer and you learn how to do this, and you can make money. I, I actually CodeAcademy.org, C-O-D-E Academy.org. They're doing, a, they're doing what's called code year, and they're teaching for free. They're teaching people how to code over the course of the year. So you learn one thing a day, and by the end of that year, hopefully, you know, you can start your own business. Okay. Uh, now we will go to questions. <laughs> uh, and we'll start with you to stand up, say your name, and direct the question. Um, my name is Julie Moyo, and I'd like to do a little extra for my own. It's a little impromptu, but um, I've got to what I'm doing is show about voting and registering young know, people with vote. I just had a meeting I was on BLS talking about how voters registration is being announced, how it's getting, you know, people are getting out for But what I, you know, as an artist, I want to say that what I saw in that piece was I felt the passion was missing from 
what they were doing in a way that it was so focused on the money. It's like, oh, I don't want to live in a house. You know, and it's like, where is your passion? What are you going to give what your product has to offer humanity? Because that Steve Jobs, I think why he was so successful is because what he did was for everybody to have, because I think that was his focus. What I want to do to help make things easier for people, and I think that's what I found missing. And it kind of gave this poverty mentality of black folks are so down and out and they're so broke and they're trying to, you know, um, find another way to make a quick buck. And I know, I know that that's not what it was about, but the way it was played, the interviews and all that, it was like she was asking a young brother, and he was 25 years old. And of course, that's what young black men want to do. They want to take care of mom and all that. But I don't think she focused on bringing out their passion, and I know they have that. You have to have that when you're developing your entrepreneur. So I thought that that, for me, was lacking, and I think that a lot of people saw that because it was so much focused on money. So, so, no, I, no I, think, I think that's a great point, and I, I want to answer it in, in two levels. So, so I'll do the CNN one first, and then I'll do <laughs> the entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is... Um, at the end of the day, anyone here who's in television, there's a certain, if you create something, any kind of documentary, they try to entertain you, right? So they latch on to things that they think will entertain people. You know, nobody asked me, but I'll just, I'll just clear up the mystery. Yes, Becky is white, right? So I think you knew that the first time you saw her. Did we need five minutes to talk about it? No. But that's, you know, that's, that's how they do it, right? So I, I think you have to also look at this was a nine-week program, right? And me being involved in a large part of it, I watch it every time and realize that there's things that I wish was in there, different pieces of it that kind of show the process a little bit, right? But I, I still have to look at it from a glass half full scenario and so say, you know what? It was on national TV and our faces were there and it allows me to continue a conversation. So I, I agree with that. The second thing on the entrepreneur side is, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, in a lot of cases I don't believe, you know, they had some passion. I don't believe they had enough passion. I mean, that dinner conversation was one of many interactions I've had with you guys that were not always as pleasant because I pushed them because I, I didn't believe that they realized the, the vastness of this opportunity. And, and and you are right. So successful startups don't aren't successful because the people care about money because in order for you to get the level of, of excellence in product design and, and features and thinking about your audience, if you're thinking about how to make money, you usually go in a different way. Um, you know, you're right. I mean, I've been listening to the Steve Jobs biography, and that's, you know, he's not caring about money a long time ago, but didn't change his view. And, but the challenge is for us, though, is, you know, for African Americans, I mean, we're coming from a struggle point, so it's hard not to think about the, the money aspect of it. So you got, you got a few in Well, yeah, but, well, kind of. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I mean, from a, I mean, you know, it's hard for us to come, it's, you know, it's hard to come from, impoverished background and not think about the money opportunity. But I do agree that there's a point. you got to love it, right? Like, I'm in technology because I love it, you know, and, and I, you know, I, that's all I know. You know, I started college trying to be an accountant. And, like, second year in, I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this for the rest of my life because I didn't love it. So what we got to, what I want to do is all of us have unique talent. And regardless of whether it's technology or anything else, they're God-giving gifts. And once we recognize to accept those talents and do those our career and life paths based on what we love, we're going to be successful. The challenge is now is that we have so many inhibitors in our life that we're not allowed to, to really envelop and understand our true gifts and passions. 
and let them kind of guide us, right? we got to get to that point. My thing is that technology has so many avenues. If you're an artist, technology can help you accelerate there. If you're, um, you, you know, if, if you, if you're a great oratorical speaker, technology can allow you to get that, speak out to millions of people through podcasts and things of that nature. It's just a vehicle. It's not the end game. It's just a vehicle to, to, to laser focus whatever talent you have in a given direction. Um, hi, I'm Dr. Naomi Johnson Booker, and I'm the CEO of Charter School Global Mission Academy. What you're talking about is exactly what we are about, which is preparing young people to the So, at our school, technology is all over the place. Our young people, seventh and eighth graders, they have laptops. That they take home and they use on a daily basis for their investment. It's all over. Um, watching young people graduate, and I'm an educator, I've done PowerPoint some presentations, and now watching them with this technology racing to the top, they, will, they are passing me far better than. than now, the thing about it is that what you say about trying to get people to support it, because we're trying now. We have a um, media room in the building, empty room in the building, is cool. we've got an empty room. We're trying to get people to now support this mission, which is to get young people into impact technology, do the coding, know what to do. I have uh, two young people that went on YouTube, right, and they are interviewing and they're interviewing people once a month. And I don't know how they did it. And I don't, but, but they interview people in the school and then they go on YouTube and they're doing this. What needs to happen so that when they get to that point, what can we do, you know, at this point? Where can I go now to get some real support with somebody who wants children, kindergarten, late grade, to really get invested because we prepare future leaders of the world. And so, yes, I know I have another president of the United States, probably three, four, five of them, you know, at my school going forward. And, yes, because he became president, he had opened the door. And I, I hear them tell me that. They know they can do that. But I need, we need support at this point because you can't teach them like the 1900s. You can't do that. So, and we need to, I don't know if anybody can give me any insight. I looked at every one of those codes. I've looked at everything so I can get it out there so that my teachers and my technology get our kids so that they, these young people, can reach to the top of these, whatever they want to be with technology. That's where the world is. And um, they, they should be able to get a job in West Philadelphia working in China. This is going to happen, you know, because of the technology. Those are the kind of, that's what we have to open up. We have to do that. So, um, so first, and all the time, yeah. So, so first, <laughs> I, I, I thank you, uh, and I'm going to tell you, you don't have to go anywhere. I'm going to come to you. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so it's funny again, you know. You know, I always say that God is kind of the, you know, the ultimate architect, right? Yeah. So Stephanie mentioned Code Academy. A friend of mine. Um, 
friend of mine, Greg Battle, who, who I started the company with, emailed me and said he talked to the guy who runs Code Academy and he wants to find a charter school to be a pilot program. So I will bring Code Academy. And that's exactly two days ago. Um, because they're looking for they're looking for environments to prove that their process works. So now your school will be that environment. And I will come up with I will bring, I will bring, I will enlist, drag anyone I know who's black who ever wrote a lot of code to come talk to your school, and we will talk to your teachers. And I think more importantly, the other thing we should talk about is we should talk to the parents, right? Because here's the challenge, right? And I think we have to understand this, right? You know, and let's, let's talk about the digital divide for a second. Um, when the digital divide first happened, it was more about us having the access to the technology and it not being over here, but being over here. It shifted more to it being here, but us not being digitally literate enough to take advantage of it, right? And I'll give you a couple examples that I know are fact. Um, every, almost every major department store has started taking applications online. So if you're somebody in the inner city who, work, who lives in a housing project and wants to work at the Walmart that just opened five miles away, you save up whatever money you have, you haven't worked for six or eight months, you know, I'm going to get some stuff to apply to Walmart. Walk into Walmart, you say, I want to apply. They're like, well, we don't take applications. That happens, right? And, and the bigger thing is, we're, we're in struggling economies. We have to teach, you know, we have to teach parents the importance of internet technology, right? Because once they recognize that they can be educated, their kids can be educated, um, that there's access to information that just widens their perspective it will change the gambit. That's where we are in the divide right now. It's a digital literacy problem. And the challenge you face is that you bring kids into your school and, and you it's a light bulb moment, right? Once kids, you know, I have, my youngest son spends more money on the iPhone app store with my daughter on her iPhone and I don't know. They're buying apps, downloading apps. All I need is the bill. But the fact <laughs> is they know how to do it. They're comfortable with it. They, they, they interchange with computers at house because it's not scary. It's comfortable. It's commonplace, right? They don't have that environment. So you give them a laptop and they go into an environment where no one else is comfortable with that and doesn't recognize the importance of it. So twofold. We've got to train them to understand how great it is and that it is cool. I'm going to tell you like this, right? You know, I've been in technology. I've been in the hall with Kanye. I've walked past Beyonce. I've done it all because I use a computer, right? So it is cool to be in technology, and it can open doors wherever you want. But we also got to help their parents understand how important it is to encourage that. That is critical. That is absolutely critical. I agree. I the, uh, was the uh, spokesperson for Comcast's Internet Essentials Program, which basically provides low-cost broadband and a free computer to low-income families. And, and you don't really – all you need to do to qualify is have a child in the National Free Lunch Program. That's it. And I spent a week uh, back in December at their middle school down in South Philadelphia Speaking to those students, I was there every single day talking to the students, and we were supposed to have three sessions for the parents after school. We got maybe six people one day, two people a day, rain one day, so maybe there were only three people that day, and we were giving computers away. We had them on site. You'd get one with the program for free, but we actually had them on site as raffle, you know, giveaways to just encourage people to come, and we couldn't get anybody out there. We couldn't get anybody out there. And, and it's just understanding, it's, it's getting parents to understand the value of the Internet. Why is the Internet important? 
I don't need the internet. I can get Facebook on my cell phone. Yeah. And you gotta you gotta get away from that mentality and, and, and make people understand the value and, and, and it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge, but we all have to kinda do our part. I'm director of media relations
there's a, a product called Square. And what it does is it's a square device and it plugs into the top of your iPhone and turns your iPhone, your iPad, your Android phone into a credit card reader with no merchant account. So to me, you can start a business right now where you go around the small businesses for a nominal consulting fee and help them become from cash businesses to credit card businesses and be able to take those transactions anywhere. If you do the data, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I can tell you it's high, that there are hundreds of thousands of minority-owned small businesses that are cash-only businesses because they cannot um, get a, a merchant account. And I can tell you none of them know about Square. So there's this whole technology sphere of product, and there's all these businesses that don't know about them, and they'll be right in the middle. And I would even add that uh, you just mentioned you were into public speaking and things like that. Create your own YouTube channel. Like, seriously, I Google top ten YouTube earners and just look. Look at the content they're producing. Most of it is inane. To, I mean, just to be honest, it's, it's somebody falling off a skateboard or kittens playing the piano or something. But these people are earning six figures just off the ad revenue they're generating off these YouTube channels. You know what I mean? And and because they've been able to market themselves, you're a business major, so I know you know a little bit about marketing. They've been able to market their way to 2 million unique viewers, you know, 10 million subscribers, a million subscribers, and they're generating ad revenue for putting up videos of people falling off skateboards. So put up videos of you speaking and, and getting your message out there. You know, use your marketing background and acumen to generate subscribers to your channel and chase those ad dollars and get the paper that way. But like I said, use technology as the vehicle that, that generates this revenue for you. you. You don't have to code. That's, you know, that's just one of, of many opportunities in technology. Joe, make sure you're listening to all this. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Oh, I, I was just going to keep the questions rolling. Uh, until someone stops me, there's two here, so I can stay all night. <laughs> <laughs> you actually, um, just want to thank you all for having me here. And believe it or not, uh, uh, Navarro doesn't know this, but he's going to be a guest on my radio show. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so thank you all, but I do have to run. No, this is not. Oh,
now back to the same country. How do you others? I don't have anyone in house that is right now the wrong with all the No, just that bombs can wait to mark it's had that seven for a while. They were together back in the day to get where we are now. I love the fact that I'm a woman here. 
think is this wonderful charter school that it's going after because that's the new market. Not market driven, certainly not. So in that, in that vein, though, I mean, we're all very fortunate to tonight. We have never done, and spent all of our country's wrongs in the past and today, uh, we're still here and have the luxury of doing this. So I'm curious to know what reaction you have visually and also intellectually to the, uh, the tech crunch founder who said that that this country is in real trouble, and in a country where I think it's, it's actually 27 percent of America now is non-white identified. Well, 27 percent of America is non-white. So, what is your feeling when he says we all need to step up and have everybody involved in the future? Is there a visceral reaction that I want to make an introduction? Well, so just to clarify, so that that statement was actually mis. Kapoor, who started Lotus One Two Three, you're not gonna hear Michael Erickson say that. Um, I, I think so. So I want to. I think you made a couple good points. So I want to go back. Um, in terms of schools, right? I think you're exactly right. Right? We need to reform that. And I think um, in certain places, people are taking the entrepreneurial mindset. I don't know if you guys know Mayor Bloomberg announced last week that they took a school in Brooklyn and they're turning it into the National Coding Academy, right? So he's partnering with VCs. Those kids are going to learn how to code. He convinced um, Cornell to build a technology campus on, I can't remember the name of the island, outside of Manhattan. There you go. Um, so certain people who are forward-thinking are thinking that. The challenge is for us, like everything else, by the time that that trickles down to the inner city schools that we are in, it will be too late, right? Which is why you have pioneers like this woman here who's running the charter school who has to create and think of innovative ways and why we have to get behind that, right? The, the, the second part of your statement is absolutely right. I think it's by the year 2040, we will be a minority-dominated dom environment, right? But the challenge is many of us are not getting the skills to help fuel that economy, right? And we got to change that. Drake's not going to do it. You know, 50 Cent's not going to do it, right? We need to create people who can create those challenges. And, you know, I give, you know, had these conversations with Mitch, I give him credit in being vocal and saying that. But the challenge is we know most people, you know, our country has been fueled and dominated by ignorance for a really long time. So even if mainstream society knows that for a fact, they're not going to do anything about it unless they absolutely have to. But with us in recognizing that, to me, we should, to hear that number, we should be excited, right? We should say, okay, what are the plans we need to put in place to change the balance of economic parity over the next 15 to 20 years, and how do we start that today? It starts internally like everything else, right? You know, we're here in a building that started the Underground Railroad. The slave masters didn't come in and say, hey, I think you guys should start the Underground Railroad. We had to figure that out ourselves, you know? So we have to take that same mentality when it comes to the economic state of this country and how minorities fit in there. And it's a long process. It's not an overnight process, but these, this conversation is great. Again, the parity. I believe back in slave days there were secret small conversations like this that created revolutions, Right? we got to do the same thing. That It's an exponential thing. But if each one of us walks out of here and has a conversation with five people about this topic, we can exponentially change that paradigm over time. And in a couple of years, we're like, wow, people are really talking about it. I remember we sat in the museum on Belmont Plateau, Martin Luther King's weekend. I mean, it just has to start in that process. I've 
Yep, I'm just catching up. I'm just catching up. All right, yeah, I'm there. All right, so no, you said a lot of good points. I didn't want to mess them up. So the the first one, the funding question, I think I think that's a great point to make about how Silicon Valley and the Internet work, works in terms of funding, right? You, the, the way it typically works is you build a company, you build a product, um, it gains traction, i.e. it gains audience, and then investors come in and they determine what's called a valuation. So you think your company's worth X, they think it's worth why, and you have that debate until you meet in the middle. The further along your company is, you have more leverage in that debate. If it's just a PowerPoint deck, they have all the leverage, right? Um, and you're right. A lot of cases that happens when the business model hasn't been thought through and things of that nature, because what basically what venture capitalists are is they're betters. They basically say, look, based on this knowledge, we're going to make a bet. But the challenge is, and the crazy thing about funding, and this is interesting, because when I meet mostly African Americans and they talk about starting a company. They're like, man, I got this hot idea. If somebody would just give me some money, I could start it, right? But what people don't understand is when you take funding, in certain cases you lose control. And if you wanted to start your own business, losing control should be the last thing you want to do. So the goal should be to, to move that company as far as possible. i give you a great example. Mark Zuckerberg is still the CEO of Facebook. He's not the CEO of Facebook because he was the greatest young you know, CEO entrepreneur in, in where. He's the CEO of Facebook because Sean Parker told him that make sure that when you take funding, you maintain a larger stake. They can't fire him. He could walk in there butt naked, you know, running through the streets. They'd be like, okay, that's just Mark, because they can't fire him. He owns the large stake of the company. So that's a good thing to think about when you're talking about building businesses and taking the easy way out. That funding is not the end game. Right? It's just a process, and it comes with headaches. Those investors want 10x return. They're not going to wait for you to get their 10x return. They're going to push you in directions you may not want to go. So I think that's a classic case in terms of when you think about and that's what I meant before about understanding the process of how this thing works. It's not just building product. It's understanding the landscape. And a lot of us, we just don't have experience in it because, to your point, there's not a lot of examples. And did I, did I miss the point? Well, again, I think... Well, again, like I said, I think, you know, listen, these guys are, were eight examples. I'm not saying that they were the best examples, that they're the only examples. They were eight examples, right? So it wasn't like they did everything correctly, but at least it showed you a perspective that we could relate to, right? And I'm, as I told you, I've had a lot of conversations with them that dinner being one of them. It's not like they were getting it right, but what they did show is that we need to educate ourselves so that we were not asking for funding. You're right. And, again, it's TV. So, you know, you pick a word, they might have lumped all the times they said funding and put them in one sentence. No. So the last one, I think I, I think I got them all. Business technology piece. You're exactly right. I think when I say business technology, I'm saying what is your business and how can technology do it? Like, you know, we, we latch on to what's popular. People think, hey, I have a business. Okay, I put a Facebook page up, and now my business is going to grow 10x. That's not. That's why this young lady here is building a whole bunch of hours, you know, being a social media consultant because there's a way to do it. The thing I'm talking about is here's my business. How can technology grow it? Technology can grow it because it can take something that's only based in Philly and make it global, right? If you make a product here, I can help you launch an e-commerce site in a week, and you can be selling it to people in California without leaving your house. That's examples. Right? And there's, there's a whole bunch of those examples there. So when I say enabling it, it's like how do I take this business only here and make it like this? Technology was what allows you to do that. 
Right. We can keep the questions rolling. There's still food here. Um, I'm gonna be... <laughs> Because I'm a little afraid to even say anything. You might call, you might call me stupid. But uh, so I think um, so you're you're absolutely right, right? And, and you know, you made a point in the middle of there where you were talking about I'm not trying to denigrate anybody, but the reality is sometimes we need to tell people when they're messing up, right? And we tell people when they're failing, right? And you're right; they came in and they were not prepared. And anybody, same circumstance. The reality, and I come at it from, uh, you know, give you guys some background. So I started a company, Russell Simmons, called Global Grind. I went out to Silicon Valley. I raised about four and a half million dollars, literally from the same guy who invested in Facebook, Jim Breyer. Right. So exactly. So and Excel Partners um, is one of the top three venture capitalist firms. So I had blessings all up and down Palo Alto. I'm not, you know, it was a blessing. So the reality of that is that I understand intimate detail the level of preparation. I probably did 60 pitch presentations before I landed on in New York and California, right? Um, you know, and, and so preparation is key. They were not prepared. To walk into Google and not think you're going to pitch is asinine. And the reason why it's asinine is because the janitor at Google could have a million dollars if he was there day one and got stock options. You could be going to the bathroom. He could be like, why are you here? Oh, I got this idea. That sounds fantastic. Here's a check. And if you don't have that mentality, and the and, and, and reason why I say it's real, I'll tell you why it's real. The, I was in Silicon Valley doing investment pitches, was about to leave. Russell called me and said, I met this guy yesterday. You've got to meet him. You've got to stay. I was like, oh, who is, oh, don't worry about it. Just go meet him. That guy was Jim Bryant. That's where my funding came from. So if I wasn't ready at a moment's notice to go pitch my company, if I hadn't done the research to be able to articulate what I thought the product vision was, what the financial vision was, and how I saw us getting there at a moment's notice, that opportunity would be gone, right? And what 
these guys didn't realize, and some of them still don't realize, but again, we all aren't going to succeed, is that preparation is key, right? And today, even more so from when I was there today, understanding that, like VCs write blogs now, they'll tell you about valuation. They'll tell you about what they look for in a pitch. You know, Fred Wilson's one. There's a guy, Mark Suster, who writes one because he was an entrepreneur. Josh Kaufman here in Philadelphia. So the roadmap is there. So you're right. There's no excuse to walk into it. So I'll give you a great example. If I, if I started a, a salon tomorrow and couldn't do hair to save my life, none of y'all would come. Because I'd be two heads in and you'd be like, you know what, this dude don't know what he's doing. I'm not going back. But we believe that we can tiptoe in certain areas. And, I get, and I'll be honest with you, I get frustrated because I'll meet people and they'll be like, I got this idea, I want to create a company. But they're not really prepared. You know, I met a guy one time, had a meeting at Friday's, and it, you know, he was like, I want to pitch you my idea. He said, hey, you know, I have this idea, I'm a dancer, I want to build a site where people put up their videos and they compete and they win prizes, et cetera. And I'm like, oh, you mean like Dance Jam, the MC Hammer lost it two weeks ago? He's like, oh, he did? That's a Google search. Like, that's what I mean. Like, you, and, and, and that's why the duality of is, well, he walked away thinking, oh, this man didn't help me out. He's not, he don't want me to see me succeed, right? We've got to get past that. And that's what I meant when I said before. Sometimes we've got to tell people that you're not coming correct. And if you come correct, you're going to help everybody. Yeah. Nobody there, they were actually the other guests. Because I was sitting there and I was like, are you talking to kidding me? So it was that bad, right? And no one kind of, you know, they they kind of talked, but they didn't go say, hey, you're not prepared because nobody wanted to be the person in the room with the CNN cameras rolling saying that this black person didn't know what they're doing, right? Because all because Michael Arrington said he didn't know a black entrepreneur and he faced two weeks of scanning racist emails to his Twitter account because he knew that people were afraid of that last bank, which is why they don't want to have that conversation in Silicon Valley in the first place because nobody wants to be the racist. They don't want to be the person that is labeled as the bullseye. But the reality is they weren't prepared. They just were not, and it was and to me, it was a shame that they didn't take advantage of the opportunity. Um, after you know, so I think a lot of them didn't make the right adjustments. Uh, I'll give you another scenario. Um, I said to them that you know you're going to be in, on CNN November 13th. This was in August. That all of you should have a product live by November 13th because you were about to get the equivalent of a million dollars worth of free advertising. Uh, half of them still don't have product live. Um, so, again, you know, but 
you, I have to kind of get past that because the reality is, to your point, I, you know, the, the glass half full scenario, to your point, I'm hoping that people see this and at least encourage the idea, right? And, again, like I said, they weren't like they were the elitist examples. They were examples. And we just have to take from that. If the opportunity exists, Angela's still doing the program. There's an opportunity for, you know, more entrepreneurs to go through, go through other programs. And that we're having, if they didn't have this documentary, I wouldn't ask me to come here. I mean, I'm not, you know, but it gave us an opportunity to have this dialogue. And the difference between them, them and me is I'm going to take it, right? I'm going to make sure that we continue this conversation and, and that other people do that because I think it's important. Uh, to get into the meeting? There's no, there's no cost to get in, no. Anyone else? Yeah. I mean, we have a town. I like to thank you. I mean, uh, technology is one of the other charters. Bring it on, brother. Bring the car. Yeah. Yeah. Context. You know, I said earlier today it's about that if, if you know, if you were able to take um, a bunch of kids to Facebook, they'd have a whole different perspective. Uh, I mean, there's silly startups, you know, that that have different. I would just say, hey, can I bring some kids there and let them talk to you? Um, call First Prime Capital and say, hey, we want to bring some kids and talk to you guys and let you. You know, we just got to build context because without context, we just talking, right? We, you know, we're not if, if they don't see, hey doing this gets me this or doing this gets me that, there's no motivation. The reason why the playgrounds are full because kids see that the motivation is if I can dunk on him every time I go out, I'm going to be on TV in 20 years like LeBron. I mean, there's a, it, it, it really is. It's a visual map that happens in people's minds. There's no visual map for technology. And I would also encourage you guys to reach out to uh, NESB chapters in the area, National Society of Black Engineers. They're always looking for opportunities, community service, and going 
like that. So, you know, all of the college campuses, they have their own individual chapters. So uh, reach out to organizations like that. Society of Women Engineers uh, does stuff like that. Look at your professional organizations in engineering and the sciences and math and, and reach out to those folks. They're always uh, one last thing. Uh, they are supposed to be here next month. Mm -hmm. First time for the Psych Engineers of America. Yep. First time they're going to be in Philadelphia. Is there anyone else here from the school who wants to get Navarro Wright to come to your program? And <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> A lady in the back? You said school, I said church. I have eight classes in my church this time to start something that sometimes is training education.
back. So, so yeah, there there are um, there are computer camps actually now. Um, if you do a search in, in Google computer camp, I know there's some that are at like Princeton University, other universe, Drexel, et cetera, over the summer that you. Can, yeah, no, I no, I get it. So I think those are the prevalent ones. You're you're right; they're not exactly cheap. I think the other thing is there's the beauty of the internet. Like, um, like Stephanie mentioned, like Code Academy is free. And you don't have to wait till the summer. You can start now. And your hope is by the time the summer gets here, they're so engrossed in it, they're saying, "Hey, this is how they want to spend their day." Another site that I I trumpet to everyone is called Khan Academy, which basically has videos on every subject from math to science to economics that a guy quit his job and started a nonprofit, and your kids can learn those as well. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about technology, like you said, as prevalent as it is, like the camp level stuff, the IDD champs are the only really camps that exist because, it, it, you know, technology, as much as we think it is, still isn't mainstream yet. Right, it, it just isn't right. It, it, there's a lot of people who aren't connected with it. The opportunities we have is, you know, I'd say you can be entrepreneurial and, and say um, to existing camps to add that. I say to Miss Thornton, let's do a camp here at the Belmont Plateau as a program, you know, and call it the Digital Divide Camp. I mean, you know, I think there, there's opportunities to do that. Um, you know, I, you know, one of the things I was going to, uh, you know, I'll tell you guys now as I'm telling you in closing remarks is I've decided to do two things in 2012. Um, actually, God put this on my heart, New Year's Eve, to connect to 10,000 people and, and help them direct themselves to economic parity through technology, right? Uh, I'm launching what I'm calling the Close the Divide for Me program, uh, which will be a website that will be dedicated to having all this information out there. Um, I'm partnering with various partners to go speak at colleges, et cetera, to hit that goal of 10,000 people. I think I got 500 people already with the with the charter school, 800. So you just accelerated my process. So um, you know, I encourage. So you know, and I would as part of that, I would do my best to to find those pockets of information that you guys can use. I really believe if you wait for an institution to do it, it's actually too late because the the, the information's right there and prevalent. Stephanie has a blog, and I'm sure she'll give you guys the URL before you leave, where she puts a lot of that information out there, too. So there's various resources to take advantage of. Um, I did just want to put one out there. Yeah, unfortunately, it's only for girls. Uh, the Girls Action Network, girlsactionnetwork.org, uh, their mission is to increase the amount of 
minority young ladies going into STEM careers. I'm actually on the board of directors, and they sponsor young girls every summer for uh, academies at, I believe, Sarah Lawrence. Um, there's a couple of other universities that they that they sponsor young girls going to uh, spend the summer to learn about careers and, and STEM careers. So if anybody knows of a young lady uh, that might be interested, girlsactionnetwork.org, and uh, find out about their summer program. Uh, I really do not like to do this, but we are out of time. And um, these two wonderful people are going to be here afterwards to uh, talk to you more if you need to, uh, one of them at least. Uh, and, uh, and there's still food, so on your way out you can still grab more food. Really quick. So, so, so really quick, I just want to say um, thank you to Ms. Thornton for opening up um, this venue. Um, and, and, and lastly, just say thank you for you guys taking the time to do this. And, you know, some people wait in. I also believe that people who wait out receive rewards. So all of you will be getting one of the official NOAC Demos T-shirts. Yeah, I have to mention it's sponsored by the Villa Dream Project, which is the Villa stores in the Philadelphia area. They have a nonprofit project they do to educate youth in careers and technology. So you all will get these for your friends who don't have these. They are on sale in the barrelright.com as we speak in the NOAC Demos T-shirt store. Um, and then lastly, I, I you know, I think uh, I'm an entrepreneur all day, all day. Um, yeah, I eat and sleep it. So, uh, you know, just lastly, I, I, I think, I want everybody, and I hope everybody recognizes that this was truly a blessing, right? When when we have the opportunity to kind of share ideas in a three-point scenario that we just don't do enough as black people, uh, I think we should be blessed in it. And I'd ask you guys, if you would indulge me, if you all stand, I was able to do it on national TV, I want to do it here and end us up in a little prayer. Uh, <laughs> So, so if everybody would bow our heads. Father God, we again thank you for the opportunity to enrich our lives by bringing us together and let us share our minds, our intellects, and our individual skills. We recognize that the only way we come out of mediocrity, which is sin, is to share our individual talents and share them openly without prejudice, without limitation. We hope that everyone comes out of this place and creates an exponential growth of information and knowledge that they share with others and that we turn the tide. We recognize that you say that only we only need three people in the room to create a church, and we've magnified that exponentially here tonight, Lord. So we hope that we go out and we honor not only your name, we honor the people that you put in our lives to be that legacy. It is not ironic that we had this conversation on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's death, who you put in front of our lives to be a pioneer of this equality. So we hope for economic parity, we hope for growth, and we hope for peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you.